with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning. Welcome to After 9. I'm Eric Allen, your host for the next hour. My guest today in, uh, in-house in is uh, Sheldon Clare. He'll be with us for the first half hour talking about uh, Canada's gun control situation. <clears throat> After that, I'm going to go to uh, Peter Ewart, and we'll talk about the uh, BCGEU strike situation, and then to Herb Martin, and we'll talk about the homeless situation in Prince George and in the province of British Columbia, for that matter. But starting off with Sheldon, uh, uh, welcome aboard, Sheldon. Hi, Eric. Great, great to be here again. I want to get Sheldon to first just get into the gun control uh, situation today and the legislation that the Liberals are trying to bring in in regards to handguns, correct? That's what they're working on? Well, it's a bit more than that, Eric. Bill Bill C-21 is part of a greater package and part of a longer thread of gun control in Canada. But there are a couple of egregious parts of it. One of them is about the... uh, liberal long-term policy goal from Paul Martin in 2005 to ban handguns, uh, which has never been rescinded and has always been a liberal policy. So there's that element of it. But the other element, which is probably more dangerous and much more egregious, is the attempt to have red flag laws where you can have star chamber secret courts to be able to uh, receive complaints about firearms owners, have them heard without any uh, ability to challenge or refute what's said, and not face the accuser. So there are these, in effect, uh, setups to get you into trouble, and not even the police can go in and have input. It's just the person making this complaint. Now, this is supposed to protect people from uh, domestic situations and so on, but the effect of it can be that people can make a complaint without any ramifications to them, that can really be quite hurtful and even uh, could have significant un- unintended or intended consequences to a firearms owner. I just want to just slide off of that just for a minute. How do you think that we get into a situation? Like when you talk like that, that reminds me of uh, some articles I read years ago in communist countries and in China where everybody in the the hamlet or village or whatever was suspected of being a spy for the government. And it could be a 70-year-old lady who's out in the street sweeping to somebody working in a restaurant or whatever, and they would make a report to the government, and you would be in trouble. And uh, this sounds very much the same way. So, But what I'm wondering about is how do we get to this situation? Like, who are the people that dream this stuff up and bring it forward and somehow or ever, uh, somehow or seem to think that it's okay to do that type of thing? Well, it's it's ideological, and it goes back a long, long ways. It's probably a good point to just give the historical context of how we got to where we are, because gun control, modern gun control, I'd, I'd say the last 50, 60 years, started as a reaction to several high-profile assassinations that were happening in the 1960s in the United States. Most people would be familiar with the Kennedy assassination, the Kennedy assassinations, I should say, Malcolm X, (coughs) Martin Luther King, uh, and so on. And you also had a few high-profile shooting incidents, uh, like the Dallas Clock uh, Tower 
uh, incident. But in the Canadian context, it was also in- influenced by reaction to the Vietnam War. It was also influenced by the uh, October crisis with the FLQ in 1970 and has a distraction from the divisive debate over capital punishment. It was, it was seen as, well, we'll have gun control. That'll get everybody arguing because there's strong feelings about it. And we'll, we'll distract from the big debate on capital punishment, which was uh, sorted out as no more capital punishment in Canada. So that modern era, and there were gun control initiatives well before this, starts in 1978 with the passage of Bill C-51 by the Trudeau Liberals. And the key elements of that bill were that it brought in the Firearms Acquisition Certificate, which was a police record check that you had to be able to prove before you obtained a firearm. It uh, introduced prohibited firearms into the mix. You start, they started to prohibit firearms, and I've got some personal uh, aspects of this. It raised the age that you could purchase a firearm from 16 to 18, and before it was 16, it was as low as 13. And it restricted the AR-15 rifle, which was non-restricted prior to that. And then that rifle was made non-restricted again through most of the 80s by Joe Clark's government uh, when they took the AR-15 off of the restricted list, made it non-restricted, and then it became one of the more popular modern sporting rifles. The next big sweep of legislation takes place in the Mulroney government uh, with uh, his Justice Minister Kim Campbell, and when Mulroney steps down and hands Kim Campbell the bag of poo that the conservative government had become because of long-term distraction over federalism, Quebec, and the Constitution that it had been toying with at the expense of other issues through the 80s, uh, Kim Campbell has, has, a, has a goal, and she had been lobbied heavily about this, as a, and it was apparent as a, a reaction to the shootings at Ecole Polytechnique, brought in a bill called C-80. Now, C-80 was really quite draconian, and it, the reaction to this was huge. People wrote letters. There were bags and bags and bags of mail that were being uh, delivered to the House of Commons and the Senate. And that bill was, was pulled... And it was reintroduced as Bill C-17. And C-17 brought in magazine capacity limits, removing the standard capacities that had been there. It, it created safe storage laws, which were really anti-self-defense laws. They were intended to stop people from doing self, having firearms accessible for self-defense. And it also banned many firearms by order and counsel. The Liberals' banning of firearms on May 1st, 2020, their sweeping ban of 1,800 firearms, has a precedent. Uh, Kim Campbell did the same thing with some 256 different types of firearms and also seized many of them without compensation. It was very con- uh, and then you get into the whole argument, well, how many pieces of silver are your principles worth, right? And, and, and I, I've tried to point out that when you start talking about how much they want to compensate for you with your tax dollars for something they never owned, it's not... Uh, anything but a distraction away from the principle, because they want you to talk about the money rather than the fact that what they're doing is completely uh, unethical, wrong, and dangerous. The other thing that Kim Campbell did, which I think still is uh, at work in the firearms uh, banning groups in Ottawa, is attempting to classify firearms by points, by assigning points to different features of firearms. And this is a real rip-off of American-style gun control efforts, as most Canadian gun control efforts actually are. They, they come from the, from the left uh, uh, wing of the things like Handgun Control Incorporated uh, and so on from the United States of America. 
So anyway, Kim Campbell's bill gets passed to C-17, and she goes on to lose uh, the election and suffer the greatest defeat in Canadian electoral history, nearly seeing the complete wipeout of the party known as the Progressive Conservatives. Uh, I personally called some 300 people in her riding to encourage them to vote for the Liberal candidate at that time, because I was absolutely... Uh, livid and convinced that Kim Campbell had to be soundly defeated for them to understand that they could never do that again. And that, of course, they elected Hetty Fry, which I, uh, I, you know, I, I've got to say sorry about that. But I'm not sorry about seeing Kim Campbell defeated. She was no. bad. <clears throat> no, I think with the Kim Campbell thing, uh, I would agree with you. Uh, you know, to a certain point, but uh, also uh, Mike Wilson and uh, oh. Mike and, Wilson, uh, and our friend Mulrooney and the rest of them, uh, there was no reason to keep them around. No, absolutely fact, they, not. They all bailed early because they could see the writing on the wall. Yeah. So it was a, it was a significant change, and and I thought really good that the the electorate could send a message. Where I think uh, the uh, federal government was 187 seats at that time. And they went down to two. And it went down to two. I, I can't think of anything better that a government that's not doing this job should receive as a gift. With only two seats left, and they can, you know, ponder there. And, and she did some horrible things, like the yeah. the, the ad campaign they used, where they made Kretchen uh, 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 look with his face distorted because of this particular condition he has that he can do nothing about. And they they exploited this for political purposes. And I I, I thought that was just reprehensible. It was yeah. it was just disgusting. But but anyway, to get back to the history, so in nineteen ninety five. You get the Liberals in power after this crushing defeat of the Conservatives. And you have their Justice Minister, Alan Rock, with the, under the Cretchen government. Alan Rock was a piece of work. I met him personally in, at the Pan Pacific in Victoria, along with Hetty Fry. And I, but she was shocked when I told her how hard I'd worked to make sure she was elected. <laughs> and uh, Alan Rock had 13 of us there, including a couple of representatives from the Coalition for Gun Control. And... They were trying to push Bill C-68, what became Bill C-68. And this built upon the C-17 legislation of Kim Campbell. They wanted to out Kim Campbell, Kim Campbell on gun control. So they established a thing called the Firearms Act. They eliminated the Firearms Acquisition Certificates. Simple criminal record check. It was not a license. It was a criminal record check certificate that you would produce to buy. So it says, okay, this person is clean. And... That, that was fine. You didn't need it to own your own property. That was the point of the FAC. However, what they brought in was required mandatory training, which isn't really training. It's a pamphlet and, and a, a, a few little simple rules to follow, a, along with uh, a whole bunch of stuff about why owning guns is bad and you need to be, uh, you need to rethink what you're doing. Uh, and it made the license mandatory to possess and acquire. And this idea that it became an offense to possess firearms in Canada unless you had the license, and this is section 91 and 92 of the criminal code, it was a radical change in Canadian gun control. And it's probably the most egregious aspect of it, this license just to possess your own property. There was a constitutional challenge to this by Alberta. There could have been one from BC, but it didn't, uh, which was, I think, thrown and failed. Uh, so, the next thing you get the removal of things like the special authority to possess. Paul Martin's uh, famous crushing defeat after he offered to make banning handguns policy in a Paul Martin government. 
that that went back and blew up in his face. I, 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 I know that because I, I remember there were, there were people of all political stripes who shoot all kinds of firearms. And what has been done really since the uh, the liberal C-68, and to some extent because of Kim Campbell, is a an ideological split in people along firearms as, as much more than a wedge issue. I call it a canary in a coal mine. As my predecessor, David Tomlinson, did, and he was NFA president and, you know, when I, while I was. You, if, if they're wanting to take away your guns, there's probably a whole bunch of other stuff they want to get control of and take away as well. So the next big gun control initiative takes place in 2012, and this is under the Conservative government, uh, the Conservative Party Canada, rejigged, you know, the union of the, the Reform Party along with the Conservatives. They had their little Reform Conservative Alliance, all of that. And this is Stephen Harper's government. There's no... There's a, 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 no fulfillment of the complete promise to rescind C-68, and what they do is they bring in C-19, and this is the ending of the Long Gun Registry Act, and this is a partial fulfillment of the repeal of C-68. They retain the licensing, they retain the classification of firearms, but they really throw a, a, a spanner into the works of the attempt to engage the civil disarmament agenda, which gun control ultimately is about. It's not about public safety at all. It's nothing to do with public safety. I hear people over and over again talk about how their license protects people. Well, i got to tell you, these, there's only two of these run-amuck mass shooters in Canada uh, that I know of that did not have the requisite uh, certificate or license to own the firearms they used. And that's the one in Mayorthorpe and the one in Porta Peak. That's it. All the rest were licensed. So tell me again how the putting a license beside a gun or a person stops them from making bad choices or carrying out evil acts. It simply does not. So the uh, C-19 was a, a big deal because it took all of those firearms out of the system, allowed for their free exchange. I remember gun owners going, well, what, how do we, what do we do? And I said, this is freedom. They opened the cage door on the canary cage. Fly! Fly and 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 people were were so used to being controlled and turned into sheep that they had trouble accepting freedom when it was handed to them, even a little sliver of it, which is what that was. Then the next thing is the May first, twenty twenty Liberal Order and Council. And this bans initially some fifteen hundred, and I think it's up to over eighteen hundred and sixty types of firearms. And this affects hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Canadians who have these firearms. And it, it, it's it's by name and features. And it, this appears extremely arbitrary. It's certainly excessive. And this is done in the same style as Kim Campbell's gun grab. The difference is, is they're talking about this so-called compensation of, of a buyback. And it's not a buyback. It's just theft. With tax dollars, like, you know, you pay your money to the government, they, they give you a rebate and tell you you have to give up your property. Well, I'm sorry, that's mine. And in some of these things, people spent an awful lot of time building, they have emotional attachment to, they saw them as heirlooms that they could pass on to their family, and they've, they've designed and crafted things, particularly the AR-15 platform, the modern sporting rifle, which is not a hugely powerful uh, a firearm in terms of its choice of cartridges, and it can fire many different cartridges with, with adjustments to the uppers and so on. But this has gone after bolt-action rifles, it's gone after shotguns, it's gone after a range of different things. Nothing daunted, 
The Liberals continue in May of 2022 with C-21, which we talked about at the start. And this is how you get to C-21, is this civil disarmament agenda, which has been carried forward. And this effectively ends new ownership of handguns in Canada. It freezes any transfers, and it brings in so-called these red flag doxing or swatting laws that uh, can get someone who's completely innocent in a lot of trouble. And there's no ability to challenge an accuser. And then in August... They they bring in an import freeze on handguns. So this is a very strong, powerful agenda, and it needs to get stopped. It's not safe. Oh, okay, we're going to take a little break here, and then we'll be back and pick up uh, on the gun control issue. Join us each week for Music and the Spoken Word, featuring the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square, the longest-running, continuous weekly network broadcast in the world, celebrating over 90 years on the air. Each episode features modern and traditional arrangements of spiritual, patriotic, classical, and contemporary music, and a timely, inspiring message. Music and the Spoken Word with the Tabernacle Choir. Now heard Sunday mornings at 8, here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Summer heat can be very uncomfortable. Help alleviate this discomfort with a properly fitting bra and swimwear at Tops and Bottoms. A proper fit will help you feel great and look your best, whether you're frolicking on the beach or at a staff barbecue. For an unsurpassed one-on-one fitting service, book an appointment today online at topsandbottoms.ca or call 250-614-1553. Tops and Bottoms, great summer support for the women of Prince George. Join the Daycal and Kukum Connection elders to learn how to make a small canoe at Two Rivers Gallery. Your first craft creation will be gifted on your behalf during the upcoming Weaving Word celebration. Then you can practice your new skills on a second craft to take home. Pre-registration for this free event is strongly encouraged through Two Rivers Gallery. Weaving Words Celebration, Elders Crafting Workshop, Thursday, September 8th from 5 to 7 at Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in Canada Games Plaza. Forecast from Environment Canada, a mix of sun and cloud today, a 60% chance of showers and the risk of thunderstorm this afternoon, a high of 28 with a high UV index. Tonight, partly cloudy with a 60% chance of showers and the risk of thunderstorm this evening, clearing overnight and a low of 13. For Tuesday, mainly sunny, wind becoming north 20K near noon, a high of 28 with a high UV index. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back and uh, going to get into this gun thing a little bit more. <clears throat> like I'm kind of flabbergasted, although I basically watched all this take place over the years. But, <clears throat> you know, I'm always amazed at the amount of time and effort that governments can put into uh, issues that really aren't that complicated, but uh, they can take it from an anthill to a mountain in no short period of time and cost millions and millions and millions of dollars. Or billions. Uh, Resilience. Billions. And, and, of course, there always seems to be a hidden agenda there that they don't want to talk about. And I think that's what we're dealing with here is a, a hidden agenda on... Uh, handgun ownership and or gun ownership in Canada. I'm not even sure it's hidden, Eric. I I think it's actually been out front and they've been very... I mean mean hidden in the sense that they don't get into the true stats in the country and who's actually shooting who and uh, it's not 
the honest, everyday working man who happens to own the gun to go hunting or whatever. Very few people are killed by that component of our uh, uh, well, it, firearms population. Crime, firearms crime is actually really low in Canada. And, and you get high-profile incidents like the, this that one in, in Halifax that certainly uh, was quite visible. But that was... You know, it's illegal to do these things, and this is not about a this is not a public safety exercise in any sense of it. It's marketed as public safety, but it's not public safety. Ultimately, it's about removing all firearms from Canadian civil society. You're seeing campaigns going on to go after hunting, for example, and that's a similar sort of program. And the intent is to remove those sorts of privileges uh, from all but a select few. And this is about social reengineering or changing a culture. And how are they doing this? Well, legislation for sure, but they're also engaged in specific activities that are intended to divide people and get them arguing about bad guns and good guns and inappropriate and appropriate uses and how much tax money should be paid to steal property. So the first part of their overall strategy for the decades has been to create division, and I think they've been very effective at it. You put hunters against sport shooters, you get sport shooters against hunters, you get defensive use versus collectors and reenactors and so on, and you try to put people in little silos or pockets, boxes if you like, so you can you can take out each box in turn and then at the end of the day there's none left. I think that's what their, their strategy has been, and there's more to it. I know, but they don't seem to talk like, uh, I think it probably in the past hundred years uh, you could own a handgun, but there was certainly a lot of restrictions to it and people abided by it and that was the way it was and uh, and then of course the regular hunting uh, licenses and owning firearms like we're talking a hundred years here and, and very few absolute instances where these people who own those handguns and or rifles and hunters or whatever did anything criminal right and there's no data to support that they did uh, the criminal element of course did some people with uh uh, mental problems were involved to some degree, and then of course, our police force in Canada uh, are all gunned up. And uh, well, yeah, <laughs> you know. that, that's for sure. And, and I mean, there's some really good research out there on this. Dr. Kalen Langman looked at Canadian gun control efforts from the mid '70s forward, and he found that none of the Canadian gun laws and initiatives brought in have had any effect whatsoever. On violent criminal activities, none. I wouldn't think so. No, none at all. So. And, and the the uh, the situation is such that we are being driven towards a particular end as a matter of a wedge issue in public policy, which is supposed to isolate political opponents and make them appear to be responsible for anything bad that possibly happens. Like you don't want to be uh, you don't want to be that political party that says, "Oh, we're going to repeal this gun law," and then somebody does something using something that you you allowed. So they'll argue you allowed happen. Well, no, you didn't allow that to happen. Fortunately, this stuff is rare. The idea is to stigmatize and virtue signal, right? You stigmatize firearms, firearms, these firearms are bad. And then, therefore, by extension, the people who own them are suspect and bad. That's their game. And, I mean, you can ask Trudeau and Commissioner Lucky about whether or not legislation is crafted before something happens, because we see now portrayed out on the pages of the National Post and the Toronto Sun the fact that Commissioner Lucky was putting political, politically driven pressure on the, the police in Nova Scotia to start telling about which guns had been used because it would support pending legislation. The, the, the laws are written. They're just waiting for the next grave to dance 
on so that they can spray blood everywhere and say, hey, look at this, we're, we're, we're going to take away people's guns. You know, we're going to take away things from people who haven't done anything because we want to look like our virtue signaling is going to make a big difference. Okay, so, so, you know, assuming all that's true, and I believe that it is, what's the end game for the government? What do they hope to achieve by this? Well, what do they Eminence. hope to achieve? Well, a utopian world where we're all equal and none of us are free seems to be the case. And I, I, I think people need to really understand that there is a price that's paid for freedom. And if you want to be free, you're not going to be equal. And e- equality does not exist where there's true freedom. You are put in boxes. You are given your allotments. You are told what to do, how to do it, what your role will be in society. And that's it. And that's ultimately where this heads. Yeah, well, that doesn't do anything for me. I, I think of uh, <clears throat> China a number of years ago where everybody wore a, a blue smock and uh, there was 500,000 or a million of them standing there. You can't tell one from the other. I'd like to think that the Canadian society is full of individuals that have the freedom to think and to do things and build a society that's really interesting as opposed to driven by our elected and highly paid politicians who seem to not understand what it is that we want in this country. Well, that's right. And I, I, if the, the fact of the matter is that that individualism to make this work has to be crushed, and they're trying to crush it. Yeah. Okay, that's it for today, or at least for that first half hour. And I want to thank Sheldon for coming in. I had a really good talk. Didn't get into the rest of his life and what he does, but we will. We'll have him back one of these days. And uh also wanted to talk about uh, property rights in the Constitution or not in the Constitution. So that'll be in the future. Sure. And thanks, Sheldon. I really appreciate it. I was a pleasure. I was glad to support community radios. Sheldon was in Calgary yesterday, and he's here this morning, so he's he's on the move. I am. Good chatting with you. Take care. Talk to you later. Thank you. Minds in Motion is a fitness and social program provided for people experiencing early symptoms of dementia and their care partners. Each fitness session is followed by social time, an opportunity to connect with others living with dementia. An in-person series is available in Prince George on Tuesdays through September 6th at the YMCA. To register or for more information, contact the Prince George Resource Centre at 250-564-7533 or email info.princegeorge at alzheimer's bc.org. Parent Support Services Virtual Summer Camps are back. Camps are interactive, free, and can be attended from the comfort of home. Camps include an exploration of nature and marine life, a Zumba dance party, and a storytelling and craft session. The final Parent Support Services Virtual Summer Camp for this year starts Tuesday via Zoom. Registration and full details are available through the events link under services at parentsupportbc.ca. A study is being conducted in Prince George on making streets and outdoor places more accessible and dementia-friendly. Demscape is looking for mobile people with mild to moderate dementia to take part in the study. Participants will take part in a series of conversations and walks with a researcher. Scheduling will be at the convenience of the participant. Those taking part will also receive an honorarium. For more information about Demscape, email demscape at unbc.ca.
The Indigenous Sport, Physical Activity and Recreation Council is holding regional healthy living training sessions in person this fall. The sessions are complimentary for those working within Indigenous communities who want to deliver an Honour Your Health Challenge or Indigenous Run, Walk, Wheel program. The Northeast Region session will be at the Coast Hotel in Prince George on October 4th and 5th. Regional healthy living training sessions in person this fall from iSpark. More information and registration details are available at iSpark.ca. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back and we have Peter Hewitt online. Peter's going to give us kind of an update and an overview of the uh, B.C. Government Employee Union strike or rotating strike or whatever is taking place. You ready to roll with that, Peter? Sure am. Okay, we're going to give it to you. I got uh, Herb here listening in, and uh, we'll discuss what you have to say here as you go along. Well, yeah, like as, as everyone knows, inflation's been skyrocketing in the province and across the country, uh, reaching uh, 8% a year in June, the highest uh, since the hyperinflation days of 1983. Of course, even that figure of 8% is suspect as many people believe that the rate's much higher. You know, it depends on how it's calculated, and uh, oftentimes uh, calculations are, are, are not, in, not in order. But anyway, people are being hit hard by this. Higher food prices, rents, housing prices, gasoline, hydro, and a bunch of other costs. So in order to catch up even somewhat, many public and private sector workers, they're, they're, they're seeking wage increases and cost of living adjustment mechanisms as their contracts expire. And, you know, just before I get into the, the BCGU situation, I just want to say that uh, the, the, the cause of this, causes of this inflation are not wage increases. They have to do with the international oil prices, which are spiking like crazy, food supply shocks uh, as a result of COVID-19, housing shortage, record corporate profits, etc., you know, for workers, it's a, it's a question of trying to catch up, not a question of causing this situation. But in any case, this year, the contracts for 400,000 public sector workers in B.C. have either come due or will be expiring soon. And this includes health care workers who have been working like crazy to deal with the COVID-19 situation, social service workers, teachers, professional employees, post-secondary educators and others, and all of whom play key roles in the operations of the province, the economy, and the health and well-being of its citizens. So on June 22nd, um, 33,000 members of the B.C. General Employees Union, the BCGU, voted 95% in favor of striking for higher wages and especially a cost of living protection. And these are direct government employees employed in government services such as the B.C. Wildlife Service, corrections, administrative staff, liquor distribution, and so on. And so last Monday, uh, as a first step in the strike action, 950 BCGU workers at four B.C. liquor distribution and wholesale centers uh, set up picket lines. And these distribution centers are in Delta, Kamloops, Richmond, and Victoria. And they um, distribute liquor, but also they distribute... Uh, cannabis products to stores across the province. So, you know, the question arises, why are they out in strike? What has been the progress of negotiations with the government employer? 
back uh, several months ago in April, the government offered a 1.7.5% wage increase for the first year of a three-year contract, then 2% for each of the following two years, plus a flat 25% an hour increase. All of this amounted to a total of only about a 6% increase over three years, as I calculated. This is at a time when inflation is, is reaching almost 8% a year. In, in other words, if inflation stayed at this rate, it could, it could go up to, or would have gone up 24% in three years' time, while the BCG workers' wage increase would be a measly 6%. So workers' wages could have gone down or, or could go down by 18%. More recently, the, the government had another uh, offer, which amounts to around, from what I calculate, around a 4% increase each year of a three-year contract. But still, with inadequate protection from inflation, which uh, nobody knows how high it's going to go. It's estimated now, for example, in England, that the inflation rate could go up as high as 18% in this coming winter. So uh, in any case, if workers in B.C., if inflation rates stay the same, workers' wages will go down significantly, uh, about 12% or, or more or less or whatever. So for its part, the BCGU workers are asking for a 5% wage increase in each year of a, of a two-year contract, plus a cost-of-living adjustment, whichever one is higher. The critical thing, I think, for these workers, as well as so many others in both the public and private sector, is to have some kind of cost of living adjustment mechanism that can accommodate for runaway inflation. This seems to me to be a reasonable request. Otherwise, workers as a whole are going to get gouged by this inflation. This is not in itself good for the economy in that it reduces the purchasing power of these workers dramatically and could lead to deflation, which is a whole other problem. Anyway, just to wind up here, the, this current model of globalization has become even worse than it was before. It's like a casino where, every, where nothing is guaranteed, no one is safe, except if you're a billionaire and everyone has to fend for themselves. At least having a cost-of-living adjustment <clears throat> mechanism, as the BCGU workers are, are requesting, can create a bit more certainty for workers. And I'm hoping in the coming period that everyone gets a cost of living adjustment, whether it's uh, uh, public sector workers or private sector workers, fixed income people, or pensioners. You know, we have to have something to deal with this uh, problem. Otherwise, you just have all your, your wages or, or, or your savings just eaten away. Well, certainly that's what we're going to do there. Yeah, you know, I agree with with uh, quite a bit of what you say, Peter. But we know from past history that the you know raising uh, wages along you know over and over and over, along with the high cost of living, et cetera. Uh, but especially wages. I mean, we got five hundred to a million jobs gone now because you know every time you get an increase in salary, somebody's looking how to get rid of your job. Now. You know, I know that's not necessarily up to the unions to look after, but somebody should be looking at this. Somebody should be looking at at the cost of the goods that they're complaining about and ask the question, how did it get to be at that point? Who knows? 
if you buy something in China for a dollar and you sell it over here for $60, what takes place in between the dollar and 60? I don't hear any union guys talking about that. I don't hear any government guys talking about that. And I don't hear anybody working for corporations talking about that. But the, everybody gets a piece of the pie. Somebody's getting a big, big percentage increase and making lots of profits. And the people in the middle that don't have unions and anybody to support them are getting nailed. And somebody better start talking about that. I don't think anybody here would would uh, cover uh, increasing the minimum wage by 25%. We've got to go to a break now. Ocean Bridge and Youth to Sea connects Canadian youth from coast to coast to coast, empowering them with life and professional skills, supporting lasting civic engagement essential for our oceans to remain healthy and flourishing for generations to come. Funded by the Canada Services Corps, OceanWise runs three different programs each year, Ocean Bridge Classic, Ocean Bridge Direct Action, and Youth to Sea. Donate to OceanWise at ocean.org to help support those making the change our planet needs today. OceanWise has openings for people passionate about our environment. If that's you, OceanWise invites you to take on an incredible career doing work that matters. OceanWise is currently hiring for a number of great positions, including a youth program administrator, a manager of partnerships and educational resources, and many more. Find out more about OceanWise careers and explore the current openings through the careers link at the bottom of their homepage at ocean.org. Theatre Northwest's Summer Workshop Series wraps up Saturday with Workshop 3, Putting It Together. This workshop will demonstrate a variety of acting techniques and approaches to rehearsing scenes with a partner or an ensemble. Attendance of previous workshops is recommended, but not required. Registration and more details are available through the Shows and Events menu link at theaternorthwest.com. Summer Workshop 3, Putting It Together, Saturday from 1 to 4.30 at Theatre Northwest. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back. And I just want to finish off on that little bit of a, a side I had there, Peter. I, I think it's, you know we're getting to the point where we have to come up with a median wage for all non-union people who are working in this province. has to be somewhere, you know, uh, probably almost double or somewhat maybe a little bit less than double what they're getting now and then going forward any increases by the unions that could be worked out between all the union increases in a year in British Columbia uh, and raising benefits and that type of thing automatically go to these non-union people and they get the increase also that way the unions are fighting for everybody and not just their own uh, little hierarchies and of course they can all work together to try to keep the price down from the corporations and the other things so you know instead of having two prongs which is business trying to make profits and unions trying to keep up with them and get paid accordingly we have to think of that other third or more people that don't have any representation other than the government they elect which don't pay any attention to them i'm just gonna maybe touch on that and then we're going to swing over to herb and see if he has a comment uh, yeah, well, well, no, I don't disagree with that, like, in the sense that uh, uh, people on fixed income, pensioners, whatever, and all this are all very vulnerable. I, I would say that the, uh, the the union movement, like, for example, the CLC and all this, uh, called for a dr- dramatic increase in, uh, in, in CPP and old age pension increases, but were totally ignored by, this was uh, several years ago, were totally ignored by the governments of the day. 
you know, so the, the union movement has a, has a history, and I think a, a proud history, of actually uh, not just fighting for its own interests, but fighting for the, the rights of all in the society. And the, you go back historically and look at, uh, you know, the, the fight for, you know, minimum wage was spearheaded by uh, unions, uh, for, for public enterprises, for Medicare and all this. The unions and the labor movement played a key role in all of that. And I, and I, uh, I think that, yes, in, the, in this circumstance here, uh, everyone should have some protection from the situation. We're going in, things are coming to a, are coming to a head, and this, especially this winter, in the world, right? And um, everyone's going to need protection, and that includes the union, non-union, everyone retirees and so on and so uh, I think what's important is that people put their heads together and figure out how to uh, you know uh, put, put forward demands to government and employers and all this for this protection because we're, we're going to need it we're going into some really rough territory economically speaking good Herb you want to get in on this uh, yeah I mean I, uh, I on principle I, I definitely support people trying to get uh, maintain their wages and salaries it's uh uh, yeah, so inflation is a scary thing for sure. But, I mean, if you look at the overall picture, uh, the price of oil actually is back down to where it was before the war in Ukraine started. Uh, inflation looks like it may have peaked. And, um, uh, you know, this this may uh, may seem a lot worse than it, it uh, might turn out to be. So I think uh, cost of living escalators are, uh, are good things to have. And, uh in negotiations, and uh, you know, I look uh, not to to, to uh, be too tough on the government, but they have offered almost twelve percent over three years. Uh, the The majority of the BCGU members make good good uh, salaries between thirty two and thirty nine bucks an hour. So, you know, for people who um, are able to save. Uh, you know the increase in interest rates actually uh, that that have that have occurred uh, allow them to recoup some of these uh, cost of living increases. Uh, they're not spending all their money, uh, you know, uh, in, on, uh, they're not spending each and every paycheck as it comes in. Let's put it that way. So they they actually are benefiting in in some small way from increased uh, interest rates. So I you know you, you, I, you know I. I'm sort of uh, coming down here at a bit of a wet blanket, but um, yeah, I mean the, the union was pretty keen to go on strike. They had up until September 20th to go to go to go out, and they're already uh, they're already out in some uh, in some places. So, you know, I think uh, everyone should uh, maybe take a pop of Valium at, at this point and uh, relax a bit. Uh, inflation may be coming down, and. Um, you don't have to don't have to ramp up the rhetoric too much. I don't think. Peter, you want to comment on that? Uh, well, yeah, like uh, I, I think that it's a serious situation, right? The, the workers and employees and retirees, everyone's everyone's had uh, basically a pay cut in this last period of time. And uh, my, you know, my view on this whole thing is that it's not uh, like. Playing catch-up is not what's uh, driving inflation. There's other factors that are driving inflation. The international, like I said, international oil prices, the food supply shocks, and whatever. And we need, uh, like, the the, wor- the world is turning into, like I said before, it's turning into a kind of like a casino where everything is unstable. Every everyone is supposed to just fend for themselves or whatever. And we need more protection for uh, ordinary people, whether they're workers, 
public or private sector, retirees, whatever, right? We've got to move towards that, that, that more of that uh, stability. Otherwise, uh, this inflation just basically uh, guts the savings and guts the wages of, uh, uh, of uh, all, all employees and workers. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm for it. I think that, that, that workers, both public and private, uh, should spearhead the way to, to bring this about. But, you know, we have to keep in mind, I think the B.C., there's 500,000 uh, government employees. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, uh, you know, that's all paid for by tax dollars. And, and a lot of that tax dollar doesn't necessarily come from corporations. It comes from people who make somewhat less than the union people paying taxes to pay increases for union people. And it's the same thing in the municipalities. We're, we have people who are making a lot less than people who work for the city and they have to pay taxes to pay their salary. So it's distorted. It never used to be that bad, but it's distorted where you can have employees, say, at the city making $150,000 a year and a guy making $60,000 a year has to pay extra taxes to give that guy an increase. That's totally wrong. And and nobody's looking at it. Nobody cares. And it just goes on and on and on. They get it out of your house taxes. They get it out of your car insurance, they get it out of your income tax, whatever. Even this uh, price of gas that's fallen down now, it's gone down. Uh, that's just one component of the inflation. The rest of the prices stayed the same or are still going up. So uh, well, we have to have a better look at that. One of the questions I think should be asked is, what's taking place in the world? Is that There's record corporate profits during all of this misery that's happened uh, with COVID-19 and uh, the food supply shocks and the international oil prices. In the past uh, years and all this, there's been record corporate profits. There's money going into that whole sector, whereas everyone else is, is getting hit, whether it's inflation or, or other uh, costs and so on, right? So I, I think that's, that's something that we have to look at, right? You know, what's going on? For me, it's, uh, it's a problem on a global scale, right? The, this model of globalization that they've got, it does. It's not working for the ordinary people, whoever these people are, and wherever they are. Okay, Peter, <clears throat> that's good. That's a good discussion. We'll, have, we'll get back to it again. Uh, it's going to be with us for a while. We're going to go to a break now. When we come back, uh, Herb's going to talk to us about homelessness. Take part in the Great British Columbia Shakeout on October 20th. It's an annual opportunity to practice how to be safer during big earthquakes. Drop, cover, and hold on. The Shakeout has been organized to encourage you, your community, your school, or your organization to review and update emergency preparedness plans and supplies, and to secure your space in order to prevent damage and injuries. Get more information and register today by visiting shakeoutbc.ca. Fall classes are now booking at tworiversgallery.ca, offering a range of activities for adults, youth, and children. Smart Saturday Morning Art and Good Trouble Art Collective are returning, while Art Socials invites artists and creative workers to network and share resources across a range of topics each month. Registration and full details are available through tworiversgallery.ca. Fall classes now booking at Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in the Canada Games Plaza. 
If you're an empathetic person with strong, active listening skills and an interest in helping others, specifically families affected by dementia, the Alzheimer's Society of BC would love to hear from you. The Society is looking for ongoing volunteers to facilitate caregiver support groups with a minimum one-year commitment. For full details on volunteering for the Alzheimer's Society of BC, visit the volunteer link under Take Action at alzbc.org. Vantage Point's Essentials for New Managers is back September 27th. Lori Dazelle and Samantha Tangeter will offer insights into understanding yourself and your role, delegation and performance management, and supporting your team. Registration full details are available through the All Labs link under training at vantagepoint.ca. A program for new and aspiring nonprofit managers to strengthen their management skills. Essentials for New Managers. Three consecutive Tuesday evenings from 5.30 to 8.30 starting September 27th through the vantagepoint.ca. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back with Herb Martin. Herb's going to get into the homeless situation uh, <clears throat> in British Columbia, in Prince George, and uh, and perhaps in Medicine Hat, Alberta. Yeah, it's uh, just an interesting article I came across talking about Medicine Hat. Uh, city of about 63,000 people, so I don't know, roughly about uh, three-quarters the size of Prince George. And uh, they decided in 2009 that they were going to try and end homelessness. And uh, for, a, for a, a while, they actually succeeded. Their definition of homelessness is uh, people uh, without any, uh, with, with people on the street for more than three months. So uh, in Prince George, I think we have the highest number of homelessness in uh, in all of BC. We're looking somewhere between 600 and 800 people uh, homeless at, at any one point in time. And our definition is actually for homelessness is uh, people being on the street for longer than six months. So what they decided in uh, Medicine Hat was um, they were basically just going to uh, find housing for people uh, it first and then then deal with their addictions and or other personal problems um, so that they they started they've got a, a pretty comprehensive program they they have people out on the street trying to get people's names uh, brief history and finding out uh, what was the last successful housing situation that they've been in so they try and uh don't don't have a sort of a one size fits all they they've actually got people into uh shared housing into hotel rooms um uh into uh, uh public uh public housing and they've even gone out and rented uh, rv uh, lots for people with with rvs so since 2009, they've actually put almost 1,700 people uh, into into houses. Uh, that 1,700 people include over 400 children. Uh, they found that their shelter use has dropped by two thirds, and they found they've actually saved money because the um, homeless people are you know there's they they actually demand a lot of uh, uh, services. So they found that uh, on average, uh, it costs between twelve thousand and, and a high end of thirty-four thousand to provide housing for people. But uh, housing, uh, but uh, homeless people actually can cost up to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year for the public to support. You know, either it's through police intervention or hiring bylaw 
officers or through uh, uh, emergency medical interventions. So, and and uh, Nanaimo, that the, their experience uh, backs that up. The Nanaimo figures that it costs um, fourteen to twenty-two thousand to to uh, house a homeless person. It costs fifty-three thousand dollars to support support them on the street. So it's it's really we're being pound wise and or, or yeah, penny wise and pound foolish. I guess is the uh, is the expression. Um, the, there's there's other benefits as well. They they found out that there's a 28 percent reduction in the number of days in hospitals, 66 uh, percent reduction of the days spent in jail, uh, and court appearances increased by 44 percent. But the, you know the basic thing is uh, you know that that people are are given housing regardless of their condition, and that they're they're followed up with afterwards. They're expected to pay a third of their uh, income in rent, uh, so it's not it's not a total freebie. And um, but they've managed to largely uh, eliminate uh, uh, the homeless. Now, you know, there's uh, since since they achieved that uh, milestone, they've had a, a bit of a setback. But then you know they're, they're talking thirty people homeless, whereas Prince George, I think the number is somewhere between six hundred and eight hundred. So. And and you know you can contrast that with the uh, city of Prince George, who, uh, despite saying that they're going to provide uh, waste and uh, uh, water to the people of Moxon Flats, have done neither. And uh, I think right now, uh, uh, Pignata is is actually trucking water down to these people in 30 degree heat, when it would really not be too hard to turn on a fire hydrant and have some sort of. Uh, uh, water supply for these uh, these unfortunate people. Okay, thanks, sir. We're gonna <clears throat> just want to. Uh, I think we should distinguish between homeless people who basically don't have a home but are quite able to move into a home, and the street people who have a lot more challenges than just not having a home, but still homeless nonetheless, and. Uh, <clears throat> Peter, did you get a chance to look at that uh, uh, article about EB and uh, Riverview? Uh, yeah, no, I did. Uh, you know, like uh, I guess what it, what EB is talking about is that, um, or, or, or some people are talking about is uh, reinstituting uh, places like Riverview and all this that were used to uh, house and treat uh, you know people with mental disorders and 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 so on, right? Um, you know, because you know, when we look at the, when you look at the actual situation, like uh, in, back in the '60s, '70s, and even up to the '80s, you had, uh, you know, Riverview and other uh, institutions which were used to uh, house a lot of the people with uh, mental and addiction disorders and so on, right? But uh, you know, the, the, a new model took hold back a few decades back there, which said, well, let's integrate them. The, uh, these people into the community, but the whole problem was is they they did it without providing the supports. They sort of sort of pushed them out onto the street and threw some pills at them and um, said, "Well, be on your way." And uh, as a result, you know, this really compounded, you know, the uh, homeless problem. You know, so that a lot of the people um, who are on the street are suffering from. Uh, Addiction and uh, and mental disorders and 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 so on. So, you know, the, the the problem is that 
you know, like when you start, say, you know, should should if you're going to re- reopen Riverview and other places like it, are you going to use force to put people back into them? And that's a real problem. That's a real civil liberties, a real rights issue, right? You know, like we're you're just sort of seizing people because they happen to be addicted or have a mental disorder or whatever and putting them back in an institution. I still, but there's a real problem with that, you know, like in terms of, I think what we need are new ways of doing things. Yeah. Like Herb was saying, you know, we're talking about the moose jaw. Well, anyway, that's an interesting experiment there, you know, to look at and uh, learn from it, right? You know, because we, we, we you can't just go back to the old ways of doing things. We have to deal with it situation today and find some creative solutions okay we got about a minute to go here so i'm just going to uh, <clears throat> mention that the uh, the homeless situation uh, victoria lost the court case in 2008 Evansford lost the court case in 2015 and prince george just lost one this year i think so that's 18 19 20 20 so 14 years We've been in the courts with this situation, and we haven't gained much ground. So I don't think that the government is taking it as serious as they should yet. Do you want to just finish that off, Herb? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, you know, Prince George has, it's, it's uh, I'm sorry, but Lynn Hall has been in, in power for eight years, and uh, the homeless situation has gotten worse. So uh, hiring more bylaw enforcement officers hasn't worked. Uh, destroying their camp hasn't worked. Uh, playing tough with them and not giving them water or garbage removal hasn't worked. Maybe it's time for someone to run for mayor and uh, some new ideas. Okay, we're going to wrap this up now. I want to thank uh, Peter and Herb for coming on and uh, for the all the listeners out there. I know there's hundreds of thousands of them and uh, <laughs> Really appreciate being here today, and we'll be back next Monday. Thank you. After Nine is a weekday presentation of CFIS FM. After Nine is produced by Alan Wishart, Eric Allen, Kylie Lewis Holt, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair, with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Theme music is by The Ebbs. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. Owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society, you're listening to CFISFM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 93.1 FM.